Today we're continuing to look at this idea that we uh, started a few weeks ago, maximizing your life portion. And this is the great lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's where we've explored the subject to this point. Uh, But today I want to uh, take a little detour from the book of Ecclesiastes and read a parable in the New Testament that Jesus told and it builds upon the same principle the very same principle and it's in Matthew chapter 25 Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God and I want you to keep something in mind in Matthew 24 at the very beginning of that chapter the disciples are wondering what will be the sign of your coming when are you going to come back how will we know to look for you and I'm certain that they were confused because they seemed to have difficulty even understanding that Jesus would rise from the dead they didn't want to accept that he was about to be crucified and so Jesus teaches them in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 some principles about the kingdom of God and principles about his return and how they can live their lives in such a way now as to maximize their eternal rewards and so Jesus uh, explores this subject with them And in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, he tells them a story. We call it the parable of the talents. And today I want to tell you really the untold story of the parable of the talents. Some things that you may not already know. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through verse 30, we're going to read the entirety of the story. And you're probably already familiar with it. You've heard it before, I'm sure. Jesus says, for it is just like a man, he's talking about the kingdom of God, it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on a journey. Now, let me just pause and say a talent was an amount of money. It was not like a singing ability or what we call a talent. He gave each a different amount of money. And then he went on his journey. Verse 16. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed and I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground see you have what is yours 
But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Jesus concludes by saying, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there's, I think, a lot that we miss when we read this parable. I, I don't think that we really understand the relationship between the master and the slaves or the servants, whatever you want, want to call them. Even our own understanding of the history of slavery in the United States fails to help us grasp what's going on here because it was a different uh, time, it was a different system set up here. We don't understand the financial arrangement between the master and the servants. Questions, what are the details of the investments? What exactly is the master owed? Who gets what in the end? Who benefits? Is there any benefit to the servants? And when it comes to the third servant, that's obviously the, the climax of the story. He's the one that's different. What, what were his motivations? What was going on in his heart? And exactly what was his punishment? Why was his punishment seemingly so harsh? And so we've got a lot of unanswered questions. And I would propose to you that it even begins with us not understanding the relationship between master and slave in that day. And so here's my question to you. How are we supposed to learn lessons from a story when we don't understand the main character, the supporting characters, how they interact with one another? We don't really understand the plot of the story, and we don't really understand the conclusion. I would reckon to say it's pretty impossible for us to gain a true understanding of how this would apply to our lives and so I want to help us make some sense of the story and I think the lessons will become clear and I want you to know from the outset that the slaves that are mentioned well they represent you and me and the master that's mentioned well that represents the Lord and so uh, just keep that in mind as we explore what's going on first question is the relationship between the master and the servants now when you and I think about slaves we think of men and women working in the fields at a plantation um, maybe a few of the slaves would be privileged enough to serve as a butler or a maid inside the house uh, but that's not the picture here the servants in this parable are not slaves in the way that you and I think of it what we've learned about slavery is that slaves have absolutely no rights. They have no authority. They are simply nothing more than possessions of another human being. But that's not exactly the case here with these servants. Now, to be sure, these servants in this parable, they didn't have absolute freedom. They were not freemen. Uh, they had a master, and they had to answer to that master. They were not in a position even to bargain with their master. They had to do what he said. He said to do something, they had to do it. They had to obey. And so they were slaves in that sense, but it's not like they didn't have any authority or any rights or any freedoms whatsoever. The servants in this parable 
actually had some freedom. Specifically, what we know is that they had the freedom to engage in commercial enterprise on behalf of their master. And so they could go to town at their own will. They weren't shackled to a tree or uh, anything like that. There weren't armed guards you know, trying to keep them from exercising their own will. No, these men had the ability to go into town at their own will. They could invest the capital of their master They had the legal authority, according to Roman law, to protect the capital of their master. And so that means that they could, if they engaged in a business dealing and they wanted to grant a customer release from his obligations, maybe the customer didn't have a means to pay or maybe they had some other kind of relationship, some other deal they wanted to work out with the customer with whom they had a contract, they had the freedom to do that. They could grant financial release to customers that were under obligation. Even though the money was not theirs, it was their master's. They had that right. They could engage in litigation. They could take some of their business associates that they would do business with in town, they could take them to court. They could sue them in court. If other parties, for example, failed to uphold their side of the contract. And so I want you to get a real clear understanding of the relationship between the master and the servants in that day. Here's the best way to understand how these servants related to their master. Legally, they were partners in a business. The only difference was, when you you and I think about being a partner in a business, is that these partners, these servants, were subservient to their master. But they were partners in a business. The servants supplied their own skill and labor. The master supplied the money. The servants... They were actually doing business with another man's money, their own master's money. And under Roman law, these servants had all the rights and obligations that freemen had when they would engage in business. The one caveat, again, is that their investor was also their master. Think of it this way. Some of you may have a financial advisor that you go to from time to time that you talk with and you entrust your money with your retirement funds your 401ks and whatever else you entrust all of your investments maybe with the financial advisor think of it this way what if your financial advisor what if the manager of your funds was also your slave you like that idea don't you um it sounds pretty good right as long as you're the master as long as you're not the slave right so that was the arrangement here So this relationship between the master and the slaves, it is a capital services partnership. The master provides the capital. The servants provide the services. The servants do not have capital of their own to invest, but they have to rely on their master slash investor. And once the master investor gives them some investment capital, once he gives them some money, they can do anything they want with it anything they want they have the freedom to do whatever they want they have absolute free will to do whatever they want they can even invest in things engage in business practices that the master never thought of they could do whatever they want with it things that he didn't even consider and as long as the servants did not breach the faith of the master investor by committing fraud the master was at least morally obligated to maintain the partnership. 
He had to maintain the partnership. He had a deal with these men, even though they were slaves. And as long as they didn't, uh, didn't breach the faith by committing fraud, the partnership remained in place. And at the end of the agreement, the servants would render an account to their master, just like happens today. At the end of the day, the manager of a business has to give some kind of report to the owner. And so that's what these men had to do. Question number two, what's going on with the investment? Are there details that we don't know about? And why would it matter to us? Well, it does matter to us. In this parable, the master, what's the ma- what does the master want to do? He wants to make some money. He's got some money to invest. It's just sitting in his bank account, or it's just sitting in his wallet. It's not making him money. And there comes a point, I'm told, I don't know this from experience, that when you have enough money, your money can actually make money. Must be nice. But that's what he wanted to do. He wanted his money to make some more money. And so he wanted to invest in something. Now, he could have handled it himself. He could have gone into town, done his own deals, and made some money. But not so with this master. He's an important man. He's got business to do out of town. But that shouldn't stop him. He's just going to find someone else who's going to make some money for him. He allows, or he chooses to allow, other parties to invest his capital. Question, who does he choose? Well, if he had chosen an outside party to handle his capital, there would have been a specific agreement of terms. The contract would have called for a certain length of time, There would have been a percentage of profits for each, typically in that day, when a man who was an investor would hire an outsider to invest some funds, they would split the profits two-thirds for the investor, one-third for the manager or the merchant. But, you know, we've already read the parable. We know that's not what happens here. As Paul Harvey would say, we already know the rest of the story. And this particular master chose to be his merchants, those who were already his servants. That changes a lot. You see, when the partnership between an investor in that day and merchants is a master to his servants, there is no formal contract. There is, however, an understanding And these are some of the following points of understanding that I want you to be aware of in that day. When the master made an investment and he turned over money to his servant, one half of the capital that was given to the servant was considered a loan to the servant. The servant was incurring a debt that had to be repaid. If all or a portion of it was lost due to bad investments, then the servant would still have to find a way to pay that 50% back. The other half of the capital was in that day considered a deposit in trust. In other words, the risk for the other half lied entirely with the master. And so the master gives, let's say, five talents, five amounts of money, two and a half of it given to the first servant, 
is considered a loan that the first servant has to repay regardless of anything else. The other two and a half, the risk is on the master or the investor. Okay, simple enough. Now, any amount that's given back to the master at the end of the partnership would go to pay back the master's obligation first. In other words, if the investment lost 50% of the capital, let's say that first servant, he had five talents, things just went south. People ripped him off. Whatever happened, it was a bad deal. The economy turned bad. The Dow crashed. Whatever happened. And at the end of the contract, he said, Master, I've only got two and a half talents to give you. The master says, thank you for giving me back my 50%. You still owe me the other two and a half talents because that was a loan I gave to you. You didn't lose my money. You lost your money. And so uh, the, you have to understand that the servants here were enduring, uh, they, that they were incurring a debt. And so if the investment was so bad that more than 50% was lost, let's say the whole thing was lost. All five talents given to the first servant was lost. The servant would still be on the hook only for two and a half talents. The 50% that was a loan to him. The master lost his money and maybe learned a lesson who to trust next time. And so that was the financial arrangement of deals like this at the time. We don't read that in Matthew. Matthew doesn't, Jesus didn't go into that detail, but it would have been understood. But what if the investment went well? What if things went good? Well, if the investment went well and the master profited greatly, he would undoubtedly reward his honest and good servant well. Now, you remember if the master investor had hired outside firm, they would get one-third of the profits. Probably the, the servant wouldn't get one-third of the profits, but he would get something. He would probably get something. He'd make a decent income. He would still have to pay all 100% back, but the profits, the profits would belong to the master too, but the master would certainly give him a bonus, would pay him well. Also in the future, and more importantly, I would say, the master, if things went well, would know this is a man I can trust. And I'm going to trust this man with even greater investments in the future. In fact, if you think about this scenario, the parable, that scenario probably already occurred. How do we know? Because the, the story begins, the master gives one servant five, another servant two, and another servant one. Presumably, in the past, the one who earned five had already risen to that level, and the one who earned two, or gained two, he rose to that level. And the master still had some questions about the third guy. He wasn't given quite as much. And so presumably those investments weren't just handed out randomly, but they were based on prior performance. So question number three. What was the outcome of their partnerships? Well, you know the story. The first two servants, what did they do? They invested their capital. They did some business deals. They sold some stuff on eBay. Whatever they did, they gained an extra 100%. They got back their, their 100%, gained another 100%. So they were able to pay back their master, the first servant an extra five, the second servant an extra two because that's how much they were given. 
And so they could each repay the master the 50% deposit and trust. They could pay the master the 50% loan, and then they had an extra 100% to pay the master. Won't the master be pleased? And he was. And so, like I said, they're going to be rewarded with a bonus, most likely. But certainly, and the master makes this explicit, they're going to be entrusted with greater deposits to invest in the future. But then we come to the third servant. And this is the point of the parable. The third servant made no investment whatsoever. He didn't even try. Instead, he hid the money. And so the third servant came back to the master and said, Here is the 50% deposit and trust, and here's the 50% loan that you gave me. I haven't lost a thing. Question, why didn't he invest it? He claims he was afraid. He said, I know you're a hard man and I'm afraid. He claimed he was afraid, but was that the truth? Was it simply because he was cautious? Was he just a little bit on the conservative side, you know, wanting to invest in bonds instead of stocks? Or something? You know, was, he, was he just, you know, getting to the age where he needed to not take all of his funds and invest them and lose everything, lose his whole shirt? No, it wasn't that at all. He wasn't being cautious, and he wasn't simply scared. Here's what was actually going on. The third servant believed that the amount given to him was too small. Even if he doubled it, there would hardly be any profit for him. What am I going to get? A bonus off of a single talent? In fact, he's not guaranteed to receive anything. He might get no bonus whatsoever. Read again what he said about his master in verse 24. He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. That's an odd statement. Why would the servant say to his master, I know that you reap where you do not sow? Well, didn't the guy give him some, didn't the guy sow some seed with them? Didn't the guy sow some capital with them? What's, the, what's this third servant talking about? You reap where you did not sow. You gather where you scattered no seed. Here's what he's talking about. He believed his master would exploit his strong position in the partnership to derive an unfair proportion of the, from the investments. The third servant saying, look, in this relationship, this partnership with you and me, I'm the weak one. I have, I, have no, I, I have no ground. You have all the ground. And I know that you're unfair. And so if I took that money and I invested it, I wouldn't get anything out of it. Because you're an unfair person. You wouldn't bless me at all. You wouldn't give me a bonus. The financial term for this kind of relationship is a leonine partnership i don't know if you ever heard of that it's where you've got two people in a business relationship and one of them is liable for losses 
but he's not entitled to share in the partnership, to share in the profits. Well, that's not fair. In fact, it's, it's illegal in most places to have a partnership and only one person's liable for the losses, but he doesn't get any of the profits. I mean, that's just blatantly unfair. That is what the servant is accusing the master of doing. You've incurred me with debt, and yet you aren't going to share any profits with me. That's not fair. You know, sometimes when we read this parable, we interpret the third servant's response like this. Well, master, I didn't want to lose any of your money, so I hid it away. Where's my reward? Now, that's not a good reading of, that's not a good understanding of this parable. This third servant, he's not expecting a reward. In fact, he knows he's not getting rewarded. He knows he's not going to receive a commendation. The third servant is essentially saying to his master this. You gave me too little. Have you so little confidence in me? If there had been any profit whatsoever, I would have hardly received anything. It was within my discretion, as whether as well as when, to commence trading. If I lost money, I would have had to pay you. So I decided not to start. I'm going to teach you a lesson, master. Next time... Give me a bigger investment so I can make a profit for myself. And that's why the master was so upset in verses 26 through 28. He answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the one talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Why didn't the third servant at least do that? I mean, why didn't he deposit the money in the bank? Same reason. Because there was nothing in it for him. If he had put that money in the bank, the interest rate would have been so small that the master would have received back his 100% plus a little bit of interest. And the third servant was convinced he wouldn't receive any benefit whatsoever. There was nothing in it for him. You see, Jews in ancient days, they believed many times that their relationship with God was a business deal. They put it in terms of commercial enterprise. For example, think of the word debt. Jesus, what did Jesus tell us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts. We've incurred a debt to God. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Why didn't, why didn't Jesus just say sin? He didn't. He said debt. Matthew 18, 27, you remember this other parable we're not going to read it all one verse says and the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt in colossians chapter 2 verse 14 the apostle paul writes this verse a great verse think about it in financial terms paul said in colossians 2 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross how would you like to have all of your credit cards nailed to the cross? That's what Paul's saying. 
we have a big honking credit card with God and we owe an awful lot more than we can ever repay and the interest is way too great but you know what Jesus did he took that credit card he nailed it to a cross and that's in terms we you and I can understand think about the word treasures what did Jesus say do not store up for yourself treasures on earth but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven treasures in heaven this relationship that we have with God is again put in financial terms you think of the word trust and that's the key word here trust you know what a trust is financially you know what a trust is a trust is a deposit for safe and profitable keeping in ancient Jewish thought spiritually speaking there are three great trusts a soul was a trust the word of God was a trust that should be handled accurately and handled well and the riches of the world are a trust they are a spiritual trust a trust to be employed with cheerful obedience according to the master's instructions and that's the central concept here trust in this parable the money that is entrusted to the servants is a test of their faithfulness and those that passed the test gained a reward the first servant received the money that was taken from the third servant the third servant as you know failed the test not only did he lose his reward but he also lost his relationship with his master that relationship was terminated here are some lessons for you and me because you are one of those servants and so am I we are either the first or the second hopefully or otherwise we are the third a few lessons number one don't complain that God has given you a difficult hand when you start complaining about your life portion you think about what your life portion is your life portion is the years of your life, your health, your wealth, your family, everything that God has given you, everything that is a gift from God. Don't complain about it. Don't complain that your life proportion is not good enough. Because once you start complaining, what you're actually doing is you're setting up barriers and obstacles in your life that will keep you from success. You start believing those complaints. You start believing those lies. And don't fall into the trap of the third servant who didn't think that what he was given was fair it's not fair God what you've given me so he didn't do anything with his life it's just not fair I heard about the uh, young lady I think who's from Arkansas who was swimming in a river and contracted a terrible disease a flesh-eating disease she lost her legs she, perhaps she lost her arms I can't remember the details of the story but here's a young lady full of life in her teens whole life ahead of her and sure absolutely that was devastating but she came to the conclusion that she couldn't live in her mind as if she still had legs she has a new life now she's been given a new life and now she has to live that life to the best of her ability so don't complain that God has given you a difficult hand second lesson it really doesn't matter whether you've been entrusted with a lot or with little it doesn't matter whether you've been entrusted with a lot or a little what matters is that you're faithful with whatever God has given you 
And if you're faithful, what did, what did the master say to the first servant? He said, well done, enter into the joy of your master. That was the guy who was given a lot. What did the master say to the second servant who wasn't given as much? He said the exact same thing. Well done, enter into the joy of your master. And I believe that the master would have been fully prepared to say the same thing to the guy who was only given one had he been obedient with it. He would have said, well done, and would have received the same reward. We have to remember that we're going to receive the same reward as uh, the quote-unquote important people in God's kingdom. We're all important in God's kingdom, if you know what I mean, but there are some that we view as more important. Not so with God. God says your reward is to enter into the joy of your master. Another lesson, don't believe that God is asking more of you than is possible. You know, the master master in this parable did not expect the third servant to produce ten talents. He didn't expect the third servant to produce as much as the first. The first was given more. Of course he should produce more. But the third servant was just simply to be faithful with what he had. And he was found unfaithful. The attitude that you and I need to have is this. I'm going to serve God to the best of my abilities and I'm going to trust him for the results and I want you to remember the context of this parable Jesus again is talking about the kingdom of God he's talking about when he returns his disciples asked him about his return and this was part of his answer in other words you may never be as successful as you want to be here in this world you might fall short of the goals that you've set for yourself you may have dreams in this life that are unrealized but if you're faithful with what God has given you there awaits for you a messianic banquet in which all of those who are faithful will come and eat we will all be there together with our Lord with our Savior eternal rewards are in store for you all you have to do is be faithful with the life portion God has given you remain faithful